0: Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? (laughs) In this post-Christmas week, I just want to wish each and every one of you an ongoing uh, Merry Christmas and also a Happy New Year. And uh, may you continue to have a restful and joyful season. I hope it has been so far. Uh, And now, at this point in our service, we get to, I'm excited because we get to re-engage the Sermon on the Mount. So, I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer as we open the word once again. Our Father in heaven, you are great and you are mighty and you are all powerful and all wise and all knowing. And Lord, you change not in a world around us that is changing, it seems, by the second. You are the one who does not change, uh, who are eternal. And we thank you, Lord, for your solidity, your unchangingness as we head into another new year. Uh, We thank you most of all, of course, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Redeemer and our Savior and our Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, whom you have given to believers uh, to dwell with us, to lead us in the path of righteousness for your namesake. We thank you for your design and your redemptive plan that you continue to unfold. And now as we enter your word again together as a congregation, I pray your presence and your blessing uh, that your Holy Spirit would come and take what you have inspired and work it into our bones, into our hearts and minds, that we would be changed persons and go out later today with a fresh song in our heart uh, of Jesus. I pray these things in the mighty and in the powerful name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, by the time Jesus stood on the mountain to preach the Sermon on the Mount, questions had begun to arise amongst the general population concerning Jesus himself. See, well entrenched in that society were people like the scribes and like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people who insisted on the strict and meticulous observance of the Torah, of the law of God. And they insisted on that strict observance as a way to maintain the distinctiveness of the Jewish nation. The Pharisees separated themselves from ordinary folk as they strove to keep zealously the purity laws and the Sabbath laws and the food laws. The scribes were the professional scholars of the Torah. They were the professional teachers of the law of God. The scribes normally had several students, and the scribes were people who were respected by the Sanhedrin. They advised the Sanhedrin on judicial matters. Well, Jesus had arisen on the scene, but Jesus had not gone through the typical channels that the Pharisees and the scribes had gone through in their educational process. And aside from that, Jesus had also been saying some pretty critical things about the Pharisees and the scribes. And to top it off, Jesus had been spotted eating with people that no self-respecting Pharisee would ever break bread with. And Jesus had also seemed to some to be breaking the Sabbath laws here and there. And so questions had arisen about Jesus. Some some buzz about Jesus had been rumbling around the countryside. Who is this guy after all? Does he actually care about the law of God? He's gained a following, to be sure, but what is his deal? Is his purpose to bring a new set of teachings that would contradict the Torah, the law of God, somehow, or possibly even overturn the Torah. This morning, our plan is to look into only two verses of the larger passage, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. We're going to leave verses 19 and 20 for next week. But in these four verses, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus addresses the buzz He addresses the questions about him that had been floating around the countryside. And friends, these four verses, I need to point out, are some of the most crucial verses of the entire Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Jonathan Pennington has called these four verses the thesis statement of the entire Sermon on the Mount. So it is important, I think, for us to camp here on these four verses for this week and for next. Was Jesus a breaker of God's law? Or did he come to somehow amend God's law? Did he come to annul God's law? Those sorts of questions had been live questions as Jesus stood on the mount to preach. Well, watch how Jesus begins to respond to such questions in verse 17. I hope you have a Bible open. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to, what? Abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What's Jesus doing in this verse? He is clarifying the nature of his mission. That's what he's doing. He's clearing up any misunderstandings that people may have had about his relationship to the law and the prophets. And that phrase in this verse, the law and the prophets, should be understood here as the entire Old Testament. When Jesus says law and prophets here in verse 17, he's referring to the entire Old Testament. And we know that because this phrase law and prophets was a very common way to refer to the entire Old Testament. We have it several times in various places in the New Testament Off the lips of both Jesus and the apostles. So here in 5.17, Matthew 5.17, the law and prophets means the entire Old Testament. And what Jesus is doing here is he's clarifying his relationship. How he himself relates to the entire Old Testament. This is mind-blowing stuff. He says that his mission was not to come and abolish or to put an end to the validity and the force of the Old Testament. No, let it never be said that Jesus came with an altogether new teaching that simply disposed of the Old Testament scriptures or left them behind. Let it never be said. Jesus did not come to do away with the Old Testament. Rather, Jesus says that he came to fulfill the Old Testament, to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, friends, we need to be very careful at this point and listen to Jesus as best we can. And why? Because, friends, what Jesus says here, and I want you to listen carefully, what he says here has absolutely monumental and gigantic ramifications for how we read our Bibles. Do you read your Bible? I hope you do. Nobody's saying yes. (laughs) But this has absolutely huge ramifications for how we approach the reading of our Bible. The practical application of my sermon this morning has to do with us as believers, with helping us as believers approach our Bible reading in an informed way and in a truly biblically instructed way. So what does Jesus say here and how does, he, how does what he says affect our very approach to Bible reading? Well, we've already dealt with the first part of what Jesus says here. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That is, he says, do not even entertain the thought that my mission is to do away with the Old Testament Sadly, there are many Christians in our day, some of them even high-profile teachers, who are seeking to somehow dislodge Jesus from the Old Testament. But Jesus says here, in fact, that he had come to what? To fulfill the law and prophets. Now we need to tread thoughtfully here because this is so important for our faith. What does Jesus not say here? I think that if we can spend a little time on what Jesus does not say here, it may help us to grasp more clearly and deeply what he does say. What Jesus does not say here is, I have come to endorse the Old Testament, or I have come to promote the Old Testament. It's not that Jesus simply comes as some sort of cheerleader for the Old Testament scriptures. It's not that he comes simply to provide his rubber stamp on the Old Testament and promote the Old Testament far and wide. It's not, I have come to endorse the Old Testament. Neither does Jesus say here in verse 17, I have come to expound the Old Testament or I have come to teach the Old Testament. That would not go far enough either. Jesus does not come to simply and merely pick up the mantle of the scribes and join them in teaching Genesis through Malachi. If the verb expound or teach were in the latter part of verse 17, it wouldn't be quite strong enough. Nor does Jesus say here, I have come to obey the Old Testament or I have come to keep what the Old Testament prescribes in terms of law. You see, it wasn't just that Jesus was coming simply and only to keep the regulations of God's Old Testament scriptures. He was coming to do that, but he was coming to do much more than that. So far, we've figured out the following. Jesus did not come to abolish or do away with the Old Testament Nor did he simply come only and simply to teach the Old Testament or only and simply to endorse the Old Testament or only and simply to obey the Old Testament. No, the actual verb that we find here toward the end of verse 17 is in fact the verb fulfill. I want to read the verse again because it's so important. Do not think, says Jesus, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. Jesus came on mission to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. And friends, this statement that Jesus makes here has everything to do with with how we approach the reading and the study of our Bibles. Jesus is helping us here in the art and science of reading our Bibles. And it is an art and science to read your Bible. He's telling us here, what's he telling us? He's telling us that Genesis right through Malachi, the entire Old Testament was preparation For him. That this person named Jesus fulfills Genesis through Malachi. So that we have to learn to discipline ourselves to read our Old Testament in that way. All of the Old Testament points to him. Genesis right through Malachi is all anticipation of Jesus Christ the entire Old Testament all of the stories of Adam Eve Cain Abel and Noah Abraham Isaac and Jacob and all of their joys and their sorrows David and Goliath David and Saul David and Abigail the tabernacle the temple the laws about clean and unclean foods, the entire sacrificial system, Jeremiah's prophetic warnings of judgment, all 150 Psalms, the wisdom of Proverbs, the period of the judges, Ruth and Boaz, Elijah and Elisha, Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah and Zerubbabel, blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy, the suffering of Job, all of it culminates in and is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the goal and He is the realization and He is the fruition of Of all the Old Testament Scriptures, all the prophecies and types and foreshadowings in the Old Testament, He is what was anticipated all along in the Old Testament. To quote John Murray, Jesus means here in Matthew 5.17 that the whole process of revelation deposited in the Old Testament finds in Him... Its completion, its fulfillment, its confirmation, its validation, still more, it finds in him its embodiment. Can you see that Matthew 5.17 is nothing less than a mind-boggling verse of the New Testament? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Everything that had only been in the shadows in the Old Testament, everything that was only symbolic and preliminary is fulfilled in the person, the actions, the teachings of Jesus Christ. If the Old Testament can be compared to a room with the lights off. You're in a room with the lights off and you're trying to find where is the furniture, where are my keys. The Old Testament can be compared to a room with the lights off. The lights go on with the coming of Jesus Christ and we behold all the details. When I was a kid, still in elementary school, a little different in Alberta. We have elementary school, junior high school, and high school. When I was still in elementary school, I used to love signing out Encyclopedia Brown mystery novels, mystery stories from the school library. At the end of each Encyclopedia Brown story, there was a revelation of sorts about how Encyclopedia, that was his nickname, his real name was Leroy Brown, I think, but there was a revelation about how he had solved the mystery. Uh, His solution was always based on clues that had been embedded in the story along the way. So after you read the end of the story, where the solution was, you could then go back to the earlier parts of the story to see where the clues were that maybe the first time around you'd missed as you were reading. The end of the story shed its light on the earlier parts. And friends, it's the same with our Bibles. We have the ending, the New Testament, with its revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the key. He is the solution, if you want. He is the goal, and he is the authority of the entire story. Genesis right through Revelation. Once we read the New Testament, the end of the story, we go back to the Old Testament, and our reading of the Old Testament can never be the same. We read the Old Testament now in the clear light of the New Testament where Jesus tells us that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So, for example we read the David and Goliath story as ultimately being about Jesus. That story is not as much about us slaying our personal Goliaths. We are not the center of the story. Jesus Christ is. Or the elaborate laws in the Old Testament for the Day of Atonement. Consider that for a moment the Day of Atonement, elaborate set of laws. All of it is ultimately about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And the entire story of the Exodus is really about the redemption of Jesus Christ in an ultimate sense or the long discussion in the Old Testament of a futile world that is re- rehearsed in Ecclesiastes. That story is ultimately about how Jesus Christ stepped into the same futile world that you and I live in to do what? To die on a cross and set that world free of its curse and its futility. And so on and so forth. We need to read the Old Testament with our New Testament spectacles on. Friends, listen. We do not come to our Bibles, and I want you to hear me well. We do not come to our Bible. and You can push back on this afterward. I'm fine with that. We don't come to our Bible with ourselves as the primary subject, making Jesus just the means to our personal happiness. Bible reading should be much more dangerous than that. For born-again believers whose treasure is Jesus Christ. Is your treasure Jesus Christ? Have you been enlivened by the Holy Spirit of the living God? For born-again believers whose treasure is Jesus Christ, we learn to read our Bibles panting after and looking for the supremacy and the glory of Jesus Christ in every text. He is the center of the story, not us. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then verse 18, For truly I say to you, Until a heaven and earth pass away. Now listen to what he says here. Not a yota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Wow. Those initial words in verse 18, for truly I say to you. In Greek it's amen, amen. For amen, I say to you. Jesus puts amen at the beginning of what he says, not at the end like we do. For truly, I say to you, those words are like a serious introduction or they provide what Leon Morris has called a solemn emphasis, a solemn emphasis to what Jesus says next. For truly I say to you, says Jesus, and so now as soon as he says that, we know that what he is about to say has special gravity and weight about it. He says, next, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is Accomplished. Now, Jesus has just told us in verse 17 how he came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The question is, how serious was Jesus? Or how comprehensive did he intend this fulfillment to be? We find out in verse 18. First of all, Jesus talks here about how not one yota, not one dot will be. Pass from the law, or we could translate it, not one yota, not one dot of the law will lose force or become invalid. But the question we have is, what are these yotas and dots that Jesus is talking about here? Well, listen, the yota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Right, Bill? See, I got the confirmation there from the Greek expert. Smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, but most commentators understand Jesus here actually to be making reference to what's called the Yod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the dot he mentions here in verse 18 is probably a reference to a tiny little serif or a tiny little mark that distinguishes one letter from other letters. So take an example in English or in French. The capital letter O, think of it in your mind, the capital letter O, as opposed to the capital letter Q. Picture a capital O next to a capital Q in your mind. The little mark that's on the bottom of the Q distinguishes it from the O, right? Basically, the same letter, but if not for that little mark. Well, in the Hebrew alphabet, we have similar tiny marks on letters, even tinier in some instances, tiny marks on letters that distinguish one letter from another letter. The upshot of all of this is that Jesus, here in verse 18, listen, is talking about the tiniest little letters. And the smallest marks in the Hebrew alphabet, which his Jewish listeners would know very well, the law of God was written in Hebrew. And Jesus is saying here that even those tiny marks, even those most minute details in the text of God's holy inspired word would be fulfilled in him. He's saying that not even a shred of God's written word would pass or become superfluous until the time ordained by God. Now, when is it precisely that the teachings and writings of the law and prophets will become superfluous? Jesus tells us when here, and he tells us in verse 18 in two different ways. He says, listen, that until heaven and earth pass away, the force of the entire Old Testament will be in play. Until heaven and earth pass away. And he also says, until all is accomplished, the law and the prophets will remain in force. I take those two phrases until heaven and earth pass away, and until all is accomplished. I take those two phrases as being parallel to one another. And together, I take them to mean when Jesus Christ returns a second time and there are cataclysmic events in the universe and God's reign is finally returned eternally to earth, then the law and the prophets become superfluous. But as long as this present universe stands, as it does right now as I speak, the Old Testament as understood and interpreted in light of Jesus Christ. That's very important. I'll say it again. The Old Testament, as the Old Testament is interpreted and understood in the light of Jesus Christ, it remains valid and it remains in force. With the coming of Jesus Christ, who fulfills the Old Testament... We read and apply the Old Testament differently, don't we, than people did prior to his coming. But that new reading of the Old Testament doesn't mean that it is not valid, that it is not in force. Think of it with me for a moment. At the moment when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, some prophecies and parts of the Old Testament law and prophets had already been fulfilled in him, hadn't they? Like the fact that he was born of a virgin, that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Like the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And also his overcoming of the devil in the wilderness that happened just prior to the point when he preached the sermon. The overcoming of the devil in the wilderness was the successful fulfillment of what Israel had failed to do in their wilderness experience. Jesus showed himself in that temptation experience to be the true Israel. And so at the moment when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, several prophecies of the Old Testament had already been fulfilled in him. But then also, friends... At the moment when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, other prophecies in the Law and Prophets had not yet been fulfilled. For example, the cross and the resurrection, which Jesus would shortly go on to fulfill. And then where we sit today, in 2018, his return in glory has yet to happen, right? And the new creation that Isaiah the prophet prophesied is not yet consummated, right? And so the Old Testament, every yod and dot interpreted through Jesus Christ, remains in effect. We read the Old Testament differently and we apply it differently because of Jesus, but that doesn't mean it's not still valid. Well, I wonder if you've noticed in these two verses that we've looked at, Have you noticed the high view? The high view that Jesus has of the Old Testament. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how Jesus here takes the Old Testament to be totally authoritative? Have you noticed that? I mean, he really talks up the value and the weight of the Old Testament in these verses. And so the question for us is, do we have, a high view of the Old Testament scriptures like Jesus clearly does in our passage. Ask yourself the question right now, when I read my Bible, I open my Bible, is my diet limited mostly or only to the New Testament? Or do I spend sufficient time beholding Christ and his glory in the Old Testament? In this morning's passage, Jesus exalts the authority of the Old Testament. In the words of John Wenham, he says, He says to Jesus, the Old Testament was true, authoritative, inspired. To him, the God of the Old Testament was the living God, and the teaching of the Old Testament was the teaching of the living God. To him, what the Old Testament scripture said God said. I wonder, friend, if you and I have the same high view of the Old Testament that Jesus has. Did you know, believer, I'm addressing believers, did you know, believer, that you would not stand forgiven by God? You would not stand forgiven by God for your sin right now if Jesus did not have the incredibly high view of the Old Testament that he has. Did you know that? I want to say that again because it's 100% true. As a believer, you would not stand forgiven by God in this very hour if Jesus did not have the high view of the Old Testament that he has. What do I mean by that? I mean this. The Old Testament law of God, Prescribed death for sin. You with me so far? And God cannot break his own law and just go ahead and forgive sinners of their sin while bypassing or forgetting about that death penalty. That would make God untrue to his own word if he did that. And so what does God do? He lays the sins of his people on his willing son, Jesus Christ, who goes to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus fulfills the law. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He might have cried that out when he was on the cross. On the cross, Jesus fulfills the law. He takes the death penalty for sin that had been prescribed in God's law. Not for his sin, but for the sins of his elect. So high was Jesus' view of the Old Testament law that he died to fulfill it. Amen? At the cross, the death penalty for sin that is prescribed in the law is imposed. The punishment is exacted. Jesus dies, and through that death of Jesus on the cross, we who have sinned can be forgiven. That's the only way, in fact, that we can stand forgiven. As believers, we would not stand forgiven by God for our sin right now if Jesus did not have the incredibly high view of the Old Testament that he has. Do you have a high view of the Old Testament? And will you read it this new year in light of the coming of Jesus Christ? Will you see Jesus Christ in every story and type and foreshadow That is in the Old Testament. Well, I think it would be appropriate, just before we enjoy the communion table, if we just spend a few moments now in silent prayer, thanking the Father for Jesus Christ and praying that the Holy Spirit would further impress the truths that we've explored this morning onto our hearts and minds. Let's spend some silent time in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for Jesus, first of all, and for your word and for the coherence of Jesus and your word and what that means for our lives. Uh, I pray, Lord, that as we go into our weeks this week, that uh, our weeks would be worshipful because of what we've seen here today in your word and because of Jesus himself. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen. And now go forth from here as trees, strong and healthy, rooted and grounded in God's word, nurtured by God's grace, watered and enabled by the power of the Spirit, blown and bent by enough distress to make you strong. God bless your going. Amen.